Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the international editor for Adweek, and very excited to be joined this week by two of my fellow editors here at Adweek, Lucinda Southern, our media editor, and Jason Lynch, our TV editor. We're here to talk about Hot List. Uh, Lucinda, are you excited to talk about this year's roundup of the hottest things and programs and softwares and magazines and everything. We pack so much into this project. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it with you. I'm so excited. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of definition of um, has been really stretched, but that's a good thing. We, yeah, it's like we take uh, I, this includes uh, TV and streaming. It includes publishing. It includes uh, digital in all forms. Uh, we're going to be talking about quite a bit in terms of like uh, social and podcasting and and everything. It's it's a pretty all encompassing project. Jason, I'm curious uh, as our TV editor, you're involved with so many of the biggest projects here at Adweek. Uh, you work on many of our biggest cover stories throughout the year. What do you what do you enjoy about Hot List? I mean, I should clarify, this is something where our editors spend a lot of time really looking at what are the hottest things. And, and of course, how we define hot uh, varies. Uh, but it's not just popularity. Uh, there's there's more to it than that, I guess. How would you define it? And what do you enjoy about putting this together each year? Yeah, this is definitely the the, the big project every year, I'd say, aside from upfronts in, in the spring. Um, and yeah, I think what's great about it is, as you said, you know, hot can mean a bunch of things. I should clarify at the top, hot does not mean best. Sometimes it means best, but a lot of times it doesn't mean best. It's 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 a combination of of buzz, of popularity, um, you know, of the zeitgeist. I really feel like if you go every year and you look at the the list, you really get a great snapshot of what uh, just what we were talking about and what kind of dominated the culture from from one year to the next. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a fun mix, and folks are going to disagree because, to your point, it's a very personal thing, right? And like, you, hottest kind of implies, oh, it's the most culture defining or whatever. But we all live in different bubbles, you know. We all, even though mass culture is kind of a thing, we all, uh, you know, intersect in certain places, but not in every place. Uh, Lucinda, what what kind of challenge do you think that creates for a list like this of of what was going through your head when you're trying to decide? and vet those conversations of what should be the hottest of something this year? Well, yeah, it is. Uh, it was a real process, um, months and months long process, so sort of whittling down the right categories. Because obviously after, or sort of coming towards the end of a pandemic, there are different things that make certain companies behave in certain ways or, you know, grow in certain areas. Um, so for us on the media team, we were really looking for 
publishers or individuals that were trying to do something different, trying to do something new or use their voice to progress change um, and, you know, using their, their voice for good as well as, I mean, also like many publishers as well who have come off of a year of like crazy audience highs or some really strange things that have been happening to their ad revenue. So the ones who have been able to use that to their advantage and I guess thrive in, a, in sort of a new kind of era that we're sort of coming into. Jason, let's start with TV and streaming. Um, last week's episode, uh, we really focused on kind of the state of streaming with uh, your colleague, Kelsey Sutton, all of our colleagues, but you obviously work very closely with Kelsey every day. And uh, so we did a deep dive, but I think what was really interesting about it is we're at this time where there is no clear dominator uh, of the streaming space. And I really noticed that going through this list, like it is all over the place, right? Like if you only subscribe to one streaming service, you're missing out on quite a lot looking at these shows and talent and the the best networks. Uh, there's a huge variety here. So I guess let's just kind of jump in uh, and, and look at some of the ones. It, I want to start, you know, we're going to talk about Hottest Show and, and some of the different Hottest Shows and, and series in different categories. But first, was it a really tough conversation to figure out the hottest streaming services? We break that into subscription and advertising supported. Um I mean, I don't even know. Like, I sit there looking at them all. I'm like, man, there's a lot of really good ones. Tell us who we picked for best subscription or hottest, sorry, not best, hottest uh, subscription streaming service and how you came about to that one. Yeah, th this was the first year we split this category into two. It used to just be hottest streaming service, and we split it into SVOD and AVOD because there are just so many choices. And I think this also goes to what we said at the beginning about hottest doesn't necessarily mean best or biggest. Otherwise, it would be just Netflix and a landslide because Netflix does have more subscribers than any other one. But we went uh, for hottest SVOD service, we went with Disney Plus. And that is in part because of its just massive scale and how quickly it's grown. I mean, remember, this is this service is not even two years old, and it's already surpassed 116 million global subscribers, which is just a massive number. Now, of course, you have Netflix over 200 million, but Netflix has also been at this for you know a full decade longer. So, um, you know, when you're just talking about how quickly this is scaled up and how those shows, especially those Marvel shows, have just dominated the conversation this year, um, there's just nobody that comes close to uh, to Disney. Um, and just how how quickly they have they have become relevant and and are really the only streaming service that is um, that is kind of making a run in Netflix. Yeah, and uh, I give Disney Plus a lot of credit. I think I was kind of critical of them uh, in last week's episode, uh, just because as a subscriber since day one, I do sometimes feel like when there's not a hot show on there, I don't. It's kind of like in the Game of Thrones era of like the early HBO streaming. I'm just like, eh, I'm probably all right for a while, but I will say that. When they launched and Mandalorian was kind of that hotness early on, um, the I remember thinking, well, what about when Mandalorian's gone? And then, of course, they have managed to keep that going with WandaVision, uh, with Loki, which, uh, you know, I think is just one of the most spectacular shows I've seen. Uh, you know, they, they've kept it going and it wasn't clearly just wasn't a one hit thing with the with the Mandalorian. Yeah, and there'll be there'll be plenty more coming up in the next year. We've got a Boba Fett series, we've got another season of Mandalorian, we've got several more Marvel shows, and in a lot of ways, they're just getting started. So let's um, talk about a few other streaming categories uh, real quick, uh, just to give a nod to the advertising supported the AVOD side. And that's advertising video, or is AVOD advertised 
video. What does Avon <laughs> is advertising video on the man uh, on okay. demand. It's also sometimes referred to as fast, um, which is fast ad supported television. But uh, but um, but uh, we we gave our award this year to Pluto TV, which is the kind of Viacom owned free streaming service. And there's a couple of you know dominant ones in the space. Tubi is certainly another one. But what put Pluto over the top is the fact that they're on track to clear a, a billion dollars in in revenue this year, um, which is pretty amazing when you think about. Just two years ago, Viacom CBS bought Pluto for three hundred and forty million dollars. So, in just two years, they uh, you know what they have done and how the space has exploded has just been incredible. Wow! And the um, and I I guess one category that surprised me as a parent, just because we did discuss this last week, I don't subscribe to this one, uh, but I've been tempted. Uh, is Paramount Plus? Uh, you named as the hottest kids network. So. What's the I, I having not experienced it? What is the I, I you know I felt surprised as a parent. I'm like, oh, am I missing out on the hottest kids network? What's going on on Paramount Plus? Uh, well, you know, there's you know again, this is one where you know I think a lot of streamers you can make a case. I mean, certainly Disney Plus we already mentioned is probably uh, a go-to service for a lot of a lot of families and their kids. But uh, what stood out with Paramount Plus, which was rebranded from CBS All Access earlier this year, is how finally, uh, with that rebrand, they are really finally bringing like all that Nickelodeon content into the service in a way that had really been kept at bay before. And on top of that, they're really leading the charge with the streamers who are doing the kind of day and date movie premiere. So they premiere on the streaming service the same day they're in theaters for kids films. So already this year, we've had the third SpongeBob SquarePants movie that was on Paramount Plus. There was the Paw Patrol movie that was on Paramount Plus. And we've got Clifford the Big Red Dog coming in November. And I think the kids films, especially because the, uh, because kids can't get vaccinated. Those have been, that's the genre that's been one of the hardest to kind of go into theaters right now. So to be able to, you know, have a streaming service and and be able to watch these over and over again has been a big boon for them. And then plus you've got a SpongeBob prequel that is now on Paramount Plus, tons of other content, uh, an iCarly reboot. So there's just, there's a lot of uh, new and interesting things um, on that streaming service right now. Well, I, I want to hear about two of the shows, and then I want to bring in Lucy, especially to talk about the UK perspective on some of these. But Jason, you can kind of set these up. Uh, tell us about our show of the year, obviously a big category, and then hottest drama of the year, another highly contested one. Uh, tell, tell us about those two, both on Netflix. So, yeah. So I think, you know, as we've said, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think, you know, there's a lot more fragmentation than there's ever been before. But not when it comes to our show of the year, which is Bridgerton, which is one of the shows that really dominated kind of global conversation this year. Um, And it was Netflix's most popular series ever until Squid Game uh, surpassed it. And Squid Game is on our list as well. I'll say it's hottest hottest global series. But I surpassed it a couple couple, uh, uh, days ago or weeks ago. But what, uh, you know, what what put Sean, uh, what put Bridgerton over the top is that it just dominated the conversation in the space in a way that few shows are able to anymore. It just doesn't seem like we have a communal experience when it comes to watching shows. And then very quickly after that debuted last September or last December, um, they renewed it not for 
season two, not for just season three, but through season four. There's also going to be a prequel series that Shonda Rhimes herself, who executive produces one, is going to write. So it just very quickly exploded into a franchise. There's going to be a Bridgerton event, an experiential offering next year. Um, and also it kind of helps spearheaded Shonda Rhimes' um, big extension from Netflix, a uh, five-year extension, where she is going to go not uh, not just making TV shows, but she is going to branch out into events and into experiential and into podcasts. And it's really, uh, it's, it's really been a stepping stone for kind of almost an evolution in, um, in what Netflix is doing and how people relate to shows. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been quite something. And then, so going from kind of a new show to a more relatively, uh, veteran Netflix show, uh, the crown, which we picked for hottest drama series. And even though this has been around, this is the fourth season that aired, this really broke through in a way, even though the, the first three were also successful, um, it just managed to, to, to reach a new level. And I think that is in a big part because this was the princess Diana year. And this was a year that, um, you know, people had such a connection to her. I mean, listen, I, I spent a long time working at People Magazine, um, and, you know, there was a long period of time where, you know, you put her on the cover, you were guaranteed to have one of your highest-selling covers of the year. Um, you know, it was a huge, you know, there was just such an interest in her. And then also it tapped into our interest in the royal family overall, which, you know, you could see by the the massive numbers that Oprah's interview with Prince Harry and Meghan pulled in earlier this year. We just can't get enough of royal family intrigue, royal family drama. And um, so this was just, you know, this dovetail with that. And this was just the year um, where the crown seemed to kind of reach a new level. Lucinda, I am uh, so curious to hear what how are both of these shows, The Crown uh, and and Bridgerton, how are they perceived in the UK? Is it uh, are they perceived? I mean, was Bridgerton the hit uh, or, or even have the kind of resonance over there? It was obviously an American show that takes place in London. Uh, how are those shows seen uh, in the UK? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, from all the conversations I've seen, I mean, it was hard to escape Bridgerton and people talking about about it. And I mean, it, it did feel like that water cooler moment where people were able to all just gather around and discuss it together. And yeah, the crown, um, I mean, the royal intrigue, it, it's hard for me to say how it compares to the US because we still feel it a lot here as well. Um, it's it's kind of amazing how there are still newspapers as well that will, will still follow the people model and have uh, Princess Diana on the front and still manage to sell a lot of copies. But yeah, both both standout hit shows that uh, have had a lot, of, a lot of success over here in the UK too. It's so, so what's so surreal about the crown to me with this season is that it's it's so bizarre to see a drama of things that happened in in your lifetime you know what i mean like uh like watching chernobyl uh, i mean i was a kid when chernobyl happened but i'm just like it's surreal to see a dramatized version of things that you remember right um and so, yeah, it was for some reason this season, it's one thing to go back and watch those early days where I'm like, oh, so this is what was happening before I was born. <laughs> That's and then it. Now, yeah. yeah. And but, everyone just has such a connection to it for just for that reason. And everyone just feels like it's more their show. And so let's um, before we move on past uh, TV. Uh, we are obviously a, an industry magazine uh, that covers these things closely. We talk about the consumer hits, but we also talk about the people and the powers behind these things. Jason, tell us about the TV creator of the year for this year on, on this year's hot list. 
Yeah, so um, so our creator of the year this year is Courtney Kemp, and this is a creator that you may not be um, as familiar with as a Shonda Rhimes, as a Ryan Murphy, as a Greg Berlanti, as some of the names we've picked before. But she is um, she is also a huge force in the industry. She is the creator of the Power franchise on Stars, which uh, you know Power, the original series at its peak, had ten million. Uh, viewers a uh, a week uh, tuning in, and in this kind of in this uh, era where all of the networks are franchise obsessed, and and some shows are are I think kind of greenlit just so they can potentially be you know built into franchises. She organically created a franchise out of the power, and um, has turned in has now created three different spinoffs with a fourth one in development, uh, which all of which were kind of going on simultaneously and, um, you know, have continued, uh, have continued the power story. But then additionally, beyond that, she is, uh, she herself just signed a huge new deal with Netflix earlier this year. So she's actually going to be taking a step back from the franchise, much as Sean did with Grey's Anatomy. And, um, We'll be moving to Netflix. So we had a really interesting conversation where she talked about, you know, how her her dad, who was in advertising, um, you know, really she learned a lot from him about about building a brand, and and that's what she kept in mind as she as she created that franchise. But you know, she said to me, she said, "Listen, I've been a businesswoman the last year or two as I created this franchise. You know, I'm I'm a writer, I'm a creator, and I want to get back to doing that." So um, so it's really interesting. She also spoke at our Convergent TV Summit two two weeks ago, and. Uh, she's just, she's a really, really smart, uh, smart person, a uh, smart creator. And I'm really excited to, to see whatever she's going to be doing next at Netflix. And let's talk uh, just real quickly before we move on about two streaming services that I was really fascinated to see kind of where they are now and then to imagine where they might be next year. Uh, one is is HBO, HBO Max, and uh, and then also Apple TV Plus. HBO very well represented on Hot List. Uh, we've got it is the hottest network for drama. Uh, we've got hottest uh, miniseries is Mayor of Easttown. Uh, uh, TV Executive of the Year is Casey Bloys uh, at HBO. Uh, hottest new series, White Lotus. And then you've got Ted Lasso, of course, for hottest comedy. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. But that's really Apple TV Plus's only appearance. And I would say, as someone who currently subscribes to it, that's fair. I think that's really the only what I would call hot uh, program that's on there uh, by the way we've interpreted it. But where do you see the both of those services do you see HBO just continuing to flourish with this content programming? And do you see Apple TV Plus really kind of coming into its own over this next year? Yeah, I think yes to both. Um, you know, HBO and HBO Max, was, you know, so Casey Blois, who's our TV creator of the year, is the chief content officer now for HBO and HBO Max. And I think that he's done a really good job of keeping the HBO brand um, kind of in a bubble but then also within HBO Max, you know, really uh, bringing in um, some original series of its own. Uh, certainly Hacks was, was a big breakout there and one of my favorite shows of this year. So I think that, uh, you know, it had a little bit of a rocky uh, rollout uh, in May 2020 because of the pandemic. There wasn't much that they could, there weren't many original shows that were ready, but they really have built up um, a really kind of strong mix of shows and there are some other ones that are coming down the pike uh peacemaker with uh which is john cena's character from suicide squad is going to have his own uh hbo max series in, in january and they also i think have the best among the best libraries um of any streaming services and i'm really talking more about movies 
versus uh, versus TV series. You know, a lot of a lot of my TV friends and TV writer friends, TV critic critic friends mentioned to me that they find themselves going to HBO Max more than any other streaming service. And I think that that may, you know, catch on, especially as, as kind of subscriber churn is a really big issue. And, and, you know, you need a reason to keep subscribing to these, um, to these various services. You know, if something with a deep library is, is, is certainly, uh, certainly will have a leg up for kind of keeping you subscribed. So then as for Apple TV plus, um, I think that they have a very kind of I don't think that they will will be as big as HBO Max, HBO Max, but they are doing a lot of interesting things. You know, Ted Lasso certainly is is kind of the the big the big early breakout. But um, you know, there, there's other there's other shows of theirs that I've really liked. Um, Little America is one. Um, Central Park, the animated series, is is a lot of fun. And you know, they they have a different approach where they have no library content whatsoever. Although things they've subsequently bought like Fraggle Rock um, and a couple of a couple of kids a couple of kids things. But beyond that, you know, you're really only there for the originals. So they they rise and fall by the strength of the originals. And and it was a rocky start. I mean, morning show people are kind of is very hit or miss. Uh, season two, sadly, is mostly miss. Uh, something like C, you know, you don't really hear people talking about that. Ted Lasso broke out in a big way. They have a couple other promising ones coming up. So I like um, I like their mix of programming. Um, they're just playing a different game than the others because, again, it's only originals and there, there's no library content. So so I'm I'm optimistic on both of them. Um, I think Ted Lasso will kind of open the door to um, to other people considering Apple when they're you know bringing projects and and you know they've proven now that they can um, that they can that they can make they can make a splash with the show. So um, so I, I, I I'm optimistic about uh, the prospects for both those streaming services. Yeah, I feel like with Apple TV Plus, there there's a lot of shows I check out and I'm like I watch one episode and I'm like that was interesting. Like I don't dislike it, but I don't come right. back. Like uh, I I'm I might revisit Foundation. I watched the first episode. I was like, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, that was cool. I guess. Um, and then I, you know, Ted Lasso. Some of these other shows where you just you, you're bolted in from like the first minute, you know, and and they just need some of those with momentum that kind of right. propel you yeah. into that list. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about publishing, uh, which is, you know, obviously print and digital and so many other things. Lucinda has uh, going to walk us through this year's hottest uh, everything in publishing. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Uh, Lucinda Southern, our uh, media editor, is here to walk us through uh, the uh, publishing arm of Adweek's hot list for this year. Uh, I was excited to see Adweek really uh, swept every category. Uh, it's good. <laughs> Congratulations, us. Uh, no, it's a uh, it's a very diverse list uh, with a ton of different <laughs> magazines that aren't us. Uh, but first, why don't you tell us about Publishing Executive of the Year, one of the biggest uh, categories we name. Obviously, this is one of the top people. And I don't envy anyone who's an executive in publishing uh, these days. It is, a, it is a high stakes, high stress industry that is kind of the rules are all being rewritten underneath you. And anything you came up doing uh, in your career is probably no longer the way things work at the moment. So tell us who uh, Adwe picked for Publishing Executive of the Year for 2021. Uh, yes, yeah, so right. It's such a tough gig for any publishing executive now. But this year, we uh, gave the honor to Meredith Levian, who is CEO of the New York Times. 
So yeah, New York Times is preeminent news title. Uh, so perhaps that's us not being incredibly creative. But I think it really does. She does stand up to the scrutiny over um, what we would consider to be the hottest. Uh, she took the CEO role uh, September 2020. So right in the heart of the pandemic. And when all news organizations were grappling with sort of crises under crises under crises and having to report on three huge uh stories of people's lifetimes whether it was a like civil rights movement unfolding or whether that was you know the, the pandemic still rolling on and then also a lot of publishers themselves had to then look inward for their own uh on their own diversity uh, equity and inclusion efforts and really had to hold up the mirror to themselves and then um having spoken to meredith that's really what she's been doing over the last year and um so it was really great to be able to speak with her, hear about how someone like The Times is having to really work on its culture in a way where before they'd just be like, oh, it's Times, Ian, we're The Times. This is, you know, our badge for excellence just by by dint of being us. Uh, but, you know, that was a lot of uncomfortable truths kind of came out when they were starting to observe themselves. Yeah, I feel like as a subscriber to The New York Times, I, I had taken a break from it when I felt that their op-ed uh, curation, to say, was right. um, was lacking. Uh, and that's one of the very few times in my life where I've, I've unsubscribed to a publication just because I felt that it was being irresponsible. Uh, there's obviously been a, a change of leadership on their op-ed side. And I came back. You know, I said I would. I said that if they if they made a change there as a as a reader, I would return. I did. I have been so happy uh, with my New York Times subscription across the board. I, I think it's such a wonderful uh, publication. And I mean, yeah, I subscribe to things like Crossword as well. But honestly, just being a new subscriber to that, their COVID coverage has really been um, second to none. Uh, just a spectacular resource. And just this past year has been just, I mean, just so much. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And just to find, to know that you can go to a place and get the real story and feel that they're really living up to the best tenets of journalism uh, while growing as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking here about the news product, but obviously for the CEO, that goes uh, far beyond that and what they're doing with uh, T Brand and all their other offices. So, uh, really fascinating pick. Uh, and we could talk about uh, the New York Times for quite a while, but I w I'm fascinated to hit up some of these other categories. Tell us what was the hottest magazine of the year? Hottest magazine was The Atlantic. and uh, uh, Hot new upstart yeah. publication. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to acknowledge some of the, the real leaders and heroes and the people who have been, um, you know, key and real, I guess, companions to people over the last year as well. And The Atlantic, that has, it's on its, I think, uh, 800,000 subscriptions. So it's trying to make its way to a million and, um, or beyond that, obviously, beyond that. But uh, it was, yeah, the, the different areas that The Atlantic's been um, really excelling, particularly in the COVID coverage, been doing things with, you know, um, Ed Young's like, must-reads around the pandemic and how, the U.S. is uh, responding to it and, uh, you know, hoping to bring an end to it. Um, but then there are other areas and initiatives that The Atlantic has been really doubling down in, including podcasts, which I know we're all a fan of here. So it really uh, all added up and all added up to being a, um, a smart choice for the, the magazine of the year. 
Well, let's jump around a little bit. Um, the Just to bring Jason back for a second, uh, our hottest in celebrity and entertainment is People, uh, which Jason uh, worked at, as mentioned, uh, for quite a while. Jason, what's your take on seeing how People has evolved? That's Obviously, celebrity news has not faded. <laughs> if anything, the appetite seems to be even larger. But what's your perspective as someone who was inside uh, that publication for so long about how they've managed to kind of adapt to these times where you can get your celebrity entertainment news uh, right from your Instagram feed without ever having to pick up any piece of paper. Uh, What's your take on people's evolution? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I was, when I was there, you know, the, the, the big rivals were considered to be, you know, us and, and publications like that. And now, as you said, it's, it's Instagram, you know, our, our people's whole uh, you know, they're, they're the big thing they were able to offer was, was to get up close and personal with these celebs and inside their homes. And now the celebs are kind of doing that themselves. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting. You know, I still think that there is, um, you know, that there is this sense of because people does it better than anybody else. Um, you know, there, there isn't really kind of any, there isn't really any logical kind of challenger to them. I mean, I think, you know, they, they just, they're still able to do this in a really interesting way. And, um, and, you know, do manage to kind of go beyond, yes, you know, Instagram is great, but it's also the photos, um, you know, that the, you, you don't remember Instagram captions as much, or at least there are circumstances. So I think, you know, the stories behind whatever these big events, the reporting behind these big events, um, they're still able to deliver in a way that social media can't uh, compete with, even though maybe they can on the, uh, on the, on the access front. So, Lucinda, let's uh, jump around a little bit. What is a category where you think folks might be? There's some what I would call safe bets here. The media industry is not so disrupted every single minute that, um, you know, you've got some real stalwarts here like the Washington Post is hottest in news. I think that's 100 percent deserved. They are a spectacular publication. Again, I subscribe to them as a consumer uh, and have been very happy with that subscription. But what are some categories where you think folks might be a little surprised by our picks? We have a few... um that I think would be a bit surprising. I think the hottest in health, there's obviously the key ones you would think would be uh, the the magazines from the big ones like Hearst or Condé Nast, where you would have a a women's health, for instance. But we, um, while there were a lot of great candidates, we did went for a a dot dash title called Very Well, um, because their focus on mental health over the pandemic and their coverage was... um, uh, was really powerful. They also hired a therapist for as their editor-in-chief and they uh, really care about having practitioners on the editorial team. So that was a real clear example of um, a title sort of using its expertise and using its power and using its voice to try and make a change. Um, another one that I thought was uh, a really interesting was that the whole process of doing this was just like fascinating and fun and interesting and you really you you think you know the industry when you're covering it and you're speaking to people every day about it but then when um you have some people that are coming up to you and telling you when they're uh submitting for the hot list and all just realize all of the other incredible stuff that they're doing that you don't get to see which is just made it super fun and, and interesting um so one example of that was with uh epicurious who is our hottest in food. And because um, food was like food media during the pandemic, especially, it kind of homogenized. Everyone was 
given not very many tools and you know they had their own kitchen cupboards which meant the coverage on it was to just like cook with what you have in your cupboard and uh, there were a number of different ways of doing that model but um, with Epicurious they did something like that but they also uh, said, came out and said that they were going to not like, have any beef or recipes for beef or use any cow products um, in any of their recipes um, as a, a fight for a more sustainable future. And uh, that uh, just that again was just another great example of uh, a title trying to do something a bit different and trying to use their their voice for good and um, try and try and affect a little bit of change, which um, we were definitely a fan of. Now, I was a little sad to see that the romance between Machine Gun Kelly and, uh, you know, the Megan Fox was not our hottest story of the year, but uh, just barely edging it out was the vaccine rollout and vaccine hesitancy. Tell us about that decision. I mean, this I don't think there's any doubt in the world, uh, all joking aside, that the vaccine uh, was the biggest story of the year. But also an incredibly, like, way way more difficult of a story to cover than it should have been, right? In an Ooh. ideal world, it would have just been like, hey, the vaccine is here and here's where you can get it. But instead, yeah. it ended up being the most polarizing issue of the entire year. Um, so tell us about the decision uh, to make that the, the hottest story of the year. This is not a specific article so much. It's just the yeah. thing that publishers had to cover this year. Yeah, absolutely. It was something that uh, just touched every facet of everyone's lives and um, the the way that media outlets had to cover it as well I mean it was just it was almost impossible for it to become politicized eventually and um, you know throwing different throwing lights on social economic status as well as geography as well as where people work um, so there was really never any doubt about that being our, our story of the year, um, and that, you know, continuing to still have a lot of road left in terms of how that's going to be playing out and how the media is handling it. I think that the media is, um, is, has, uh, come to terms with the fact that it hasn't always presented stories on the pandemic in the best way. And it hasn't always been responsible in the way that it's dealt with these really complex issues, um, but you know that doesn't mean it's going to stop trying. <laughs> I I, th- I feel like the the mistake that a lot of uh, media outlets made and then struggled to really uh, kind of b- backpedal on is ignoring vaccine hesitancy uh, and and ignoring those conversations. While on the other side, it was being fueled by you know people like Tucker Carlson, who is also on our hot list for hottest uh, talk show host or TV host, uh, which I think is deserved as much as I don't agree with his perspectives. Um, he certainly is one of the ones, you know, really driving conversations uh, over this past year. But you had so much fuel being poured onto the the uh, vaccine uh, skepticism argument. And then if media just continued to ignore that, it would have become and it did become increasingly imbalanced. And I think finally publishers had to really learn ways to tackle these questions because it, it went beyond just Trump supporters don't like the vaccine. Uh, because obviously there's some complexity there. Trump himself was vaccinated, uh, even at his rally here where I live in Alabama. He said people should get vaccinated and he got booed. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's complex. Uh, and then there's also still some, uh, you know, even on the non kind of big Trump fan side, uh, there's the the race and uh, income inequality aspects of it. It's a complicated thing. Mm. And I feel like mainstream media were a little sluggish to acknowledge it. And then that just enabled 
uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the other side to really kind of pour gasoline on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, tough story and a uh, perfect pick uh, for what the publishing industry was grappling with. Um, we are almost out of time, so I want to save room. There's a third part of the hot list, which is our digital. Obviously, digital is uh, everything. <laughs> it's, the world is digital. A lot of the publishers and the streaming that we've talked about obviously lives in a digital world. But let's just kind of hop over to that one. I am excited to get uh, some of your thoughts uh, on this one. Uh, there's a few like that may be surprises to people who aren't really to paying close attention to some of these niches. Um, you know, hottest game, for example, being Roblox. I will tell you, if you're not a parent, you might be like, what? Why is it not? I don't know, Call of Duty or whatever. Uh, it's because Roblox has become this absolutely just a juggernaut on a scale that uh, it was at one point bigger than Minecraft. I can't remember if they've maintained that. Um, but Roblox is a just impossibly huge thing. Um, and it's a fascinating one to read up on if you're not part of that or if you don't have kids who are really part of that. Uh, hottest digital obsession, I feel like was a, I don't know if it was a no brainer, uh, NFTs, <laughs> non-fungible tokens, NFTs. I feel like I had never heard this term a year ago, did not, had not even conceptualized the idea of digital ownership of things. And then now Lucinda, like NFTs, I don't go a day without seeing NFTs somewhere. Right. Mm. Yeah, definitely. All over Twitter, all over your inbox. Um, everyone is, uh, trying to understand them or either trying to understand them or part of the community which is obsessed with them yeah yeah it's it's a whole new universe um and you know so we're hottest gadget uh, being peloton i think is is also deserved uh that's a you could go a million different places with hottest gadget uh you could say it's the iphone 13 whatever um but in the end it's we, we the what peloton is doing from a product perspective from a service and subscription perspective is really just a game changer. And I think is the one brand that kind of every marketer, uh, every platform is really looking at um, because they are just redefining things. Uh, and then my favorite category, uh, my favorite winner probably in this whole list, the hottest rebound, the QR code. <laughs> <laughs> the humble QR code. Yeah, who knew in early 1990s that it was going to have such a fierce nest like needed comeback i mean it's just it's just staggering yeah jason you are based in uh new york new jersey uh and you can attest for those who aren't based there uh you cannot go to a restaurant without using a qr code right like it is now a mandatory process of of eating out in new york city uh yeah for sure um you know it was something that you know because of the pandemic it took a while i was maybe later to return to that than some others but um you know my team um because we're all new york based was able to get together um several months ago and it was just like immediately everybody you know reached in pulled out their phones like knew the drill i was a little 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 behind the um you know, a little kind of late to to figure out what was going on, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 incredible how how much that's changed in just a year or two. Yeah, and it's and I live in Alabama, uh, and it's hit here too. Like uh, QR codes, it's not just an urban thing. It finally got to the point where people are like, whatever. Here's here's our menu, and I mean, you know, I think most of our listeners are aware that. Uh, we're in a weird time of staffing in the food industry, right? Like places, hours change every day. There are entire restaurants that will just close because they just don't have the staffing. Their menus are completely uh, subject to what's happening that given day. Uh, so the idea of printing a menu 
uh, or, or even maintaining signage is, is very difficult now. Uh, so congrats to the QR code. I hope it's celebrating in style, enjoying it. <laughs> it's, it's time. Um, and then uh, I'll just quickly hit on two that I wrote up uh, this year, Hottest Podcast Network and Hottest Podcast App. Uh, for network, we could have gone in a lot of different directions. There are many different podcast networks, uh, but we chose Wondery. Uh, they were recently acquired by Amazon, which, of course, is a very big deal. Uh, but also Wondery, just um, really the caliber of quality. Uh, and as, as uh, I, I'm sure some folks know, uh, this was a network with very deep TV roots, right, Jason? Like, Wondery was established by these veteran TV executives. So unlike some where I think they started as, we should be podcasting and then, I don't know, maybe get big someday. These were people who came in uh, from from the Fox side of, of television and knew that podcasting had the potential uh, to be gigantic, and they put programming first. And so whether it's Dr. Death or... Uh, you know, any of these kind of mega hit shows that which are now, uh, of course, being spun up into TV. So it just feels like Wondery kind of had that figured out in a way, Jason, that a lot of podcast networks just kind of have been so stuck in being podcasts that I don't think they've had the ambition level uh, that Wondery has. You think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I think you could definitely tell um, the difference between um, between podcast networks that um, that have launched in that more organic way, organic way as as you describe, and um, and the ones that are just like, oh, everybody else is doing podcasting, let's just do that too, and throw a bunch of people in a room, and you know, that's probably all we need to do. Um, so yeah, when you know, having that, um, having kind of that that passion, and like you know, some really uh, some really interesting uh, approaches to the space as opposed to just following the crowd, um, you know, has, has been a big difference for them. Yeah, you, you'd be hard-pressed almost any week to not find Wondery shows in the top 10, top 20 of iTunes' uh, most popular podcasts. They're constantly rolling out. A lot of it's true crime, not my favorite, but I do appreciate their shows more than some. Um, and I'm, I'm currently on Over My Dead Body is my current one. Um, I think they're in season three. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just it's one of those networks where pretty much across the board, the quality level is high. And it's not just, as Jason said, it's not just a bunch of celebrities with, you know, with podcasts. And now they're all part of a network. And the network doesn't have any real sense of cohesion to it. I feel like Wondery really has the sense of one. And obviously, Amazon agreed. And then Hottest Podcast app we gave to Spotify this year. Um, I'm just still going to go out and say that podcast apps uh, generally suck. Uh, <laughs> there is no there is no high quality podcast uh, listening experience to be found. Um, so Apple Apple Podcasts, of course, being the the juggernaut in the space for years, uh, and it's 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 still not great uh, all these years. And I I use I use primarily use Apple Podcasts grudgingly. <laughs> it's just not not a high quality experience. There's obviously a lot of proprietary networks, but we gave it to uh, to Spotify this year because their podcast uh, dominance is really exploding. Uh, just millions of shows available on the platform, heavy investment in original. They uh, they got the, I guess you'd call it the rights to uh, Call Her Daddy, uh, the, you know, the sex podcast, which is an absolute mega hit, uh, and Dax Shepard's podcast. They're I mean, they're everywhere, uh, both in terms of original programming. They bought Anchor. They bought uh, Gimlet. And so uh, Spotify just uh, really, you know, crushing it across the board. I hope they improve the interface a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, just in terms of the 
the emphasis on podcasting is absolutely huge. The revenue that they are making from their audience network, from their podcasting initiatives, holy cow. Just it is a massive chunk of Spotify's uh, revenue. So definitely keep an eye on them uh, and give it a shot if you haven't. You can find this podcast there if you're not listening to it there already. Uh, they pretty much got everything. So, well, we are out of time. Uh, Jason, thanks so much. It was always a pleasure to have you back. And I'm sure we will be have you back soon to talk about uh, new shows coming in 2022 and all things else TV. Uh, so we'll have you back soon. Yeah, always happy to be here. Lucinda Southern, media editor for Adweek. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for walking us through this year's publishing picks and beyond. Uh, and I hope everyone checks you out on Hot List. Uh, it is a really fantastic piece of work. So congratulations on all the effort that went into that this year. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Well, we are out of time. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode is produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibney. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, you can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. 